As we will go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, our eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. So we pray that you would deal with your servants according to your steadfast love and teach us your statutes. We are your servants. Give us understanding that we may know your testimonies and hear our prayers, for we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. And please do turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to think about those uh, verses that we read often for our communion and then Paul's explanation of them in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 26. So if you're using the Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1219 in most of the Bibles. Uh, and 1 Corinthians is between the book of Romans and 2 Corinthians. It's the good information you learn in seminary. That 1 Corinthians comes before 2 Corinthians. Um, Right there is what we're going to consider. And these are well-known words that we consider almost every week in our short form for communion. And we're going to go on to read Paul's explanation of the supper in verse 26 and meditate on that together. So we're going to begin our reading at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, and read through 26. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. We want to think about these instructions that Paul gives about the Lord's Supper to think about the basic meaning of the Supper. When the Catechism comes to explain the sacraments to God's people, they follow a pattern. The first Lord's Day is always about the basic definitions, the basic definitions about the Supper. You may have noticed that as we read those questions. The questions are how, what, where does God promise this? Uh, The basics are laid out. And then there are following Lord's Days that get into the clarifications. Uh, So I began our discussion of baptism, and then Reverend Hedrick very helpfully went through the clarifications. He had all the hard work to do. I got to do the basics. He got to explain all the difficulties. Um, And that's what we come now to the catechism. This is the basic definition of what the Lord's Supper is. And then the two following Lord's Days will really be about clarifications, making sure that we properly understand this doctrine. Uh, So this is really about the basics today. Uh, the basics of understanding what the Lord has given to us. And we want to think about the basics of the Lord's Supper in connection with Paul's words and his instructions to the Corinthian church. Uh, we know that these words come in the, in the context of serious correction. Um, Paul says so much about the, the problems of their practice. He goes so far as to say, I don't know what you think you're doing when you gather together, but it's not the Lord's Supper that you're celebrating. Uh, whatever you're doing... Don't call it the Lord's Supper. It's not that. And so Paul, in many ways, is bringing them back to basics in this passage, and that's why it serves as a good passage to consider the basics of the Lord's Supper. Uh, Verses 23 through 25, we hear every week as those words of institution given by the Lord to Paul. 
Uh, Paul is an apostle born out of time. He was not there at the Last Supper. He didn't participate in the Last Supper and hear those words directly from Jesus then, but he did hear directly from Jesus later, and he is delivering that apostolic tradition again to the Corinthians, along with this important explanation. And that's what verse 26 really is, an explanation of the importance of what we do when we come together for the Lord's Supper. He summarizes the importance for the Christian in this verse, and that's why we want to think about it together. It helps us understand the purpose for which the Lord instituted his supper, that he might use it to bring our attention to three things. First of all, to his past redemption, the redemption that he made for us on the cross. And then he wants to bring us into a present reminder of that. So the first thing is his past redemption, and the second thing is his present reminders. Um, And finally, we want to think about his prspective return, because we are to to do these things until he comes. So that's why we want to think about the purpose of the supper this evening. The Lord's reminding us of his past redemption, his present reminders, and his prspective return. Uh, The past redemption is important. The emphasis in verse 26 really falls on the Lord's death. Um, What is it that we proclaim? It's the Lord's death until he comes. That really has the stress in the sentence. One translator said we we could look at this sentence and say, for as often as you eat and drink this bread and cup, the death of the Lord you proclaim until he comes. There really is an emphasis, centrality on this notion, on the death of the Lord being remembered. The Lord has given us this supper to draw our attention back to that event. Um, It's a wonderful way of focusing our attention on that past event. Uh, That's something that was my purpose in choosing uh, the, the song of preparation that we chose tonight. That really focuses our attention on the suffering and death of our Lord. And that's what the Lord's Supper does. It forces us to look back to that death. The death that the Lord died for his people on the cross. A salvation that happened in time and history. The Lord's Supper is given to draw our minds back to that historical event. Question 75 reminds us of Christ's one sacrifice on the cross. The answer to question 75 reminds us that his body was offered and broken for me and that his blood was poured out for me on the cross. Question 76 reminds us that it, the sacrament points us to the entire suffering and death of Christ to focus our faith there. It brings our minds back to that event that important redemptive historical event where the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross and suffered His body to be broken. Suffered His precious blood to be poured out for His people. It's to bring our minds back to that event, but then also to connect in our minds that event with the efficacy of that event. Not just to think about it as a a piece of history, but to think about how that piece of history has an effect on us. That's really the purpose of the supper, not just to celebrate an event that happened, but an event that happened that was momentous for me, that was momentous for you. Right As the Christian's catechism, what does, 
What does the Lord's Supper point us to? That his body was offered and broken for me. That his blood was poured out for me. And not just for me, but for you. For all who believe. Christ was specifically giving himself for his people, each and every one. See, we're not being just reminded of that event. We're being reminded that that event was for us. That it was effective for us. It's not an event we can think about without thinking about the efficacy for us. And that really is what Christian doctrine is. Uh, J. Gresham Machen in his famous book, Christianity and Liberalism, said that that's really what doctrine is. It's thinking about events and then applying it to us. This is what he said. From the beginning, the Christian gospel consisted in an account of something that happened. And from the beginning, the meaning of the happening was set forth. And when the meaning of the happening was set forth, then there was Christian doctrine. Christ died. That is history. Christ died for our sins. That is doctrine. Without these two elements joined in an absolutely indissoluble union, there is no Christianity. Christ died, that's history. Christ died for me, that's Christianity. That's doctrine. The efficacy of that event for the Christian. To know that he didn't just die, he died for me. He didn't just offer himself a sacrifice generally. He offered himself a sacrifice for me. It tells us that that event has a profound effect for all who believe. And that's what the supper is really meant to do, to connect that event to its effect for the life of God's people. This is beautifully laid out in our longer form for communion. Um, We don't often read our longer form because it's longer. You can write that down. Um, When we're trying to do the Lord's Supper every week, we tend to use our shorter form. But take the, the form and prayers book, the little book in the pew, and turn with me to page 39. Because there's a beautiful summary of how that event has an effect on the life of God's people. Um, This is a wonderful form that dates back uh, to the 1566 Dutch Psalter. Um, It was put together by Peter de Thanus, and it's based largely on Calvin's form for communion. Um, And it was a form that united people of different places. We, We heard from our brother this morning from South Africa and thought about, you know, the church around the world. And this form was originally written in Dutch. And then when English and Scottish refugees started to flee to the Netherlands to flee religious persecution, they were translated in English so that those refugee congregations could also use this form. So, so this form is also ecumenical as well as highly sound. But if you turn with me on page 39, look at how this event is connected to its effect in our lives. I'm going to read from page 39, beginning at the top there, celebrating our salvation in Christ. It says, Let us also consider the purpose for which our Lord has instituted this supper, that we might do this in remembrance of Him. And this is how we remember him by it. First, let us be fully persuaded in our hearts that our Lord Jesus Christ, according to the promises made to our forefathers in the Old Testament, was sent by the Father into this world. That he assumed our flesh and blood. 
that he took upon himself for us the wrath of God under which we should have perished eternally. That from the beginning of his incarnation until the end of his life on earth, he fulfilled for us all obedience and righteousness of the divine law. This was especially evident when the weight of our sins and the wrath of God caused him to sweat drops of blood in the garden. He was bound so that we might be loosed from our sins. And afterward he suffered countless insults so that we might never be put to shame. Let us confidently believe that he was innocent, yet put to death that we might be acquitted on the day of judgment. That he even allowed his own blessed body to be nailed to the cross so as to cancel the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In doing so, he took from us the curse and bore it himself so that he might fill us with his blessing. He humbled himself to the very deepest reproach and anguish of hell in body and soul on the cross when he cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did all of this so that we might be accepted by God, never to be rejected by him. Indeed, with his death and the shedding of his blood, he confirmed the new and eternal covenant, the covenant of grace and reconciliation, when he said, it is finished. We'll stop our reading there, but you see how that event is richly connected to us. That everything he gave up, he gave up to give to us. Everything he offered up and sacrificed of himself was to fill us. It shows us the importance of that effect of the death of the Lord for us. Jesus suffered and died for me. The Lord's Supper reminds us of that past redemption. But it also brings to us his present reminders. It doesn't just force us to look back, but there's something that is happening every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. There's a present reminder, something that's happening in the present. And it happens each and every time we celebrate the Supper. That's something of Paul's point in verse 26. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, as often as you do it. We could translate that as as many times as you do it. Each and every time you do it, something is happening. Something is happening now. It's not just a remembrance of the past. There's something that's happening here and now. And what is it that's happening? That death, is being proclaimed. That death is being proclaimed by the people who come and eat the bread and drink of the cup. And what does it mean to proclaim the Lord's death? Um, I like how one commentator put it. The whole congregation stands in a witness box and pulpit to proclaim their part in the death of the Lord. Now, normally, I'm the only one who gets to stand here during the service. It would be kind of chaotic if we all tried to crowd up here. Uh, That's why one person has to do it. But the Lord's Supper is is an opportunity for all of us to to essentially stand in a pulpit. For all of us, as as the person said, to stand in a witness box. To testify about the death of the Lord. 
We don't do that much in our tradition, have someone stand up and testify. But when we have the Lord's Supper, we all stand up and testify. That's what we're doing. We're proclaiming our part in this. We're proclaiming before the world, this death, I belong to it. I have a part in it. He died for me. It's, It's our amen to the promises that God has made and saying this is for me. Another commentator said it's a constant, repeated reminder and experience of that efficacy of that death. And it brings us into a present reminder by way of fellowshipping with the Lord who died. And to proclaim the name of the Lord who died for me. That's what we've been set aside for. That's how Peter described us as a people in 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And what is more excellent to proclaim as God's people than that the Son of God was willing to come and to die for me? to take on our flesh and to pay for our sin, to become a curse for us that he might set us free and fill us with his blessing. If that's not excellency, I don't know what is. That he has brought us out of our darkness into his marvelous light. And that's what the the catechism is trying to drive home for us in our memory, the glory of what God's word tells us about the efficacy of that death for us. Question 75 says that all believers are commanded to remember Christ by our participation in the supper. And then it says, with this command to remember him come these promises. First, that as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup shared with me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of him who serves and taste with my mouth the bread and the cup of the Lord given to me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. Then question 76 helps to remind us what it is to do that. What it is to eat his body and to drink his blood in this sacramental sense. And what is it? It's a present participation in that past death. Faith is the hand and mouth of the soul by which we partake of the Lord that died for us. So it says, of course, it means that remembering back to the past. It means to accept with a believing heart the entire suffering and death of Christ. And in this way, to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. It's a reminder to put our faith on that finished work. But I like that the catechism says it's more than that. It's more than just a present participation in that past death. It's a present participation in His present life. Because the Lord that died lives. It's a strange kind of memorial from what we know. Right When we go to a memorial service for someone who has died, what do we typically do? We remember the life of the one who has died. 
Right? That's typically how a memorial of a death works. You go and remember the life of one who is gone. The Lord's Supper is an entirely different kind of memorial. It's actually the opposite. We come and remember the death of someone who is alive. And he comes and celebrates with us. Right? Not like Tom Sawyer attending his own funeral because it's all been a mistake and he's not really dead. The Lord died. That's history. But that Lord who died is now alive. And when we come to the table, he actually meets us at the table as we remember his death. He's there with us by his Spirit. That's why we don't see him, boys and girls, at the table in in person. But he is there in person. He's there by his spirit. He's really with us. That makes it a whole different kind of memorial. A memorial service would be very different, right, if the person who was dead was not dead anymore. That's why we call it a Eucharist. It's a thanksgiving. Why? Because the one who died is alive. And he comes to fellowship with us. That's why it's not just a a reminder that fixes our faith on that past, but what does the catechism go on to say? It's more than that. It's a present participation in the life of the living Lord. Right? Through the Holy Spirit who lives both in Christ and in us, we are united more and more to Christ's blessed body. And so although he is in heaven and we are on earth, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. And we forever live and are governed by one spirit as members of our body are with one soul. We're celebrating the present life of Jesus at the table because the one who died lives. The one who died for us rose again. The one whose body was broken and blood was poured out has been made whole by the power of his father. He's been raised by the spirit. He's picked up his life again. And now he ever lives, unbreakable, indestructible, fellowshipping with us by his spirit. We have that life with him, and we have that life with one another. Right? It's not just solely an individual event either. It's not just uniting us to Christ, but we're united to one another. We're not just proclaiming to the world that we're proclaiming to each other. That all who are gathered participate in the body of Christ. That we all have this privilege of celebrating together. That's one of the reasons Paul is so unhappy with the way they're celebrating the supper. Because it's highlighting the differences among the congregation, not the unity. Everyone is going and doing their own thing. And the rich are bringing rich food and and rich wine and getting drunk. And the poor having nothing to share. And people are all doing their own thing. And that's one of the reasons Paul's so upset. He says this is supposed to show that we all have a participation with one another. It's not just a communion with God. It's a communion together. And that's marred if we turn the supper to our own individual purposes. It ruins the picture of a united people. What communion testifies is that each and every one of us, no matter our station in life, uh, no matter if you're the person wearing the robe up front or sitting in the pew, that we all have the same participation in the Lord. That the thing we proclaim together 
is the Lord's death. That we all individually who believe and that all of us who have gathered together have a participation in that death and a participation in that life. And through that proclamation, the Lord is pleased to work to strengthen our faith. That we testify to His death and we hear others testifying to His death. And through all of that, the Holy Spirit works to strengthen our faith to renew our understanding of that past reality of death for us and the present reminder that the living Lord is fellowshipping with us by His Spirit, that we are flesh of His flesh and bone of His bone, that we are His people, that He is our head. And it doesn't just remind us of what we have at present, as sweet as that is, it also reminds us every time we do it of His prospective return. The Lord we come together with and the Lord that we fellowship with. We're reminded that this fellowship, as rich as it is, is a stopgap measure. It's not the end-all, be-all of our existence. It'd be hard to get people to join churches if we told them, this is the end-all, be-all of your existence. The real high point of the Christian life is to listen to me talk for a half hour. If that was what I had to persuade people of, Christianity would be a really hard sell. What is the truth of our reality? The truth is we're all living for a future glory. Our minds should all be pointed forward to the future that awaits the people of God. Um, That's... That's one of the difficult things about being Christians is we have to live with all of the emphasis on the future, on the, on the glory that's coming, on the real life that awaits us. And we get little windows of that. And we get times where we meditate on that. But in this world, it's so hard to hold on to that. Right? You can have those wonderful moments that you can say with Paul, you know, to depart and be with Christ is better by far. I'm not holding on to this life. There are times we can say that. There are other times where we are so focused on this life that it's all we can see. It's all we can see with its difficulties and with its sufferings and with the things that we need to do and the things that we need to plan for and the things that we're worried about and the kind of world that's going to be left for our children. And all of that kind of stuff can press us down and make us think that it's all about the here and now. And what does the Lord's Supper do as often as we eat and drink of it? When we proclaim the Lord's death, what also are we proclaiming? We do this until He comes. We are living in the hope of His prospective return. Right? When when we use that word prospective, it just means we're expecting something to happen in the future. We're living as people who expect the Lord to come who are looking forward to better things. It's a reminder to us that when we feel the weight of being sojourners and exiles, that we come to the table and are reminded there is a homecoming. You know, sometimes people say it's all about the journey. That's not true. It's also not true when people say it's all about the destination. We're we're doing both as Christians. We're journeying with the expectation of the destination that awaits us. 
We are sojourners and pilgrims, but we are moving towards something. I often think about that in the Christian life. I think about the words of J.R.R. Tolkien who said, not all who wander are lost. Sometimes it feels like we're lost. We don't feel like pilgrims that are getting somewhere. We just look around and say, I think I'm lost. I don't recognize anything I see around me. Maybe the, the longer you live, the more disconcerting that can be. That things seem to change so quickly, and the world I seem to know doesn't seem to be around anymore. And we can feel lost. And we need that reminder that not all who wander are lost. We're pilgrims, we're on the way. And there is a day coming when we will be home. This current state of affairs is not forever. This kind of fellowship with the Lord is not forever. It's a wonderful thing to come to the table of the Lord and to meet with Him and to be able to be here as brothers and sisters together and to come and have a common table where we share a common meal with a common Lord. But again, it's 200 of us with a little piece of bread and a little cup of wine. It's the real Lord who's there. But that fellowship is not meant to be forever. Or the catechism hints at this when it says, you know, we need this because he's in heaven and we're on earth. And we need this fellowship. But in the Lord's Supper, we're reminded until he comes, there is a time when there won't be anymore that he's in heaven and we are on earth. We won't be separated anymore. That there's another kind of table fellowship that's coming. And it's not just going to be a couple hundred of us on a Sunday morning. And it's not going to be a little piece of bread and a little cup of wine. It's going to be all of God's people from the beginning of the world till its ending. Not anyone missing. And it's going to be a feast of rich food and wine well mixed. It's going to be so much more glorious, but you know, it's going to be the same Lord there that is there now with us. Everything else will change about the glorious nature of it, but it'll still be that same Lord we know. And the same sweetness of the fellowship that we know with Him and have begun with Him now. We're proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. And reminding ourselves that when he comes, these stopgap measures will be over and we'll sit down with him at the table of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then we will all be together. And we will all be with our God. And we will all be home. That's what we need most of all, is to go home. Right? That's where it stops feeling like we're out of place. It's a really strange thing to think of home being a place we've never been. Um, but you know, like our brother was saying this morning, he can come here from South Africa and still sit down and say, you know, this feels like home. This feels like people I know. This feels like my sort of people. It's a, it's a kind of foretaste of what heaven's like when we have that experience of going somewhere and sitting down with God's people and saying, you know, I really don't know any of these people, but this, is, this feels like home. 
And that's what we, we should be filled with hope every time we come to the Lord's table, to be reminded that there's a future that awaits the people of God. That this is not forever. That the Lord is coming. And when He comes, the light of that coming will outshine anything else that we've known here below. No matter how glorious the fellowship is with His people, no matter how sweet it is when we come together and hear His word and fellowship together, the glory of that day will outshine all the other days we've known. I love how one person put it, just as the full sun outshines any source of illumination otherwise provided in everyday life, so when Jesus comes again, this reality will eclipse and outshine the pledges and promises that have hitherto pointed to it. The sweetest moment you've known of fellowship with God, the closest you've ever felt to God, the most you've ever felt God speaking to you, when the Lord Jesus appears, that will eclipse it all. That will outshine it all. It'll be a glory such as we can't imagine or truly conceive of. An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's what the table is promising to us. This is glorious, but when the Lord comes, it's going to be even richer, even fuller, even more glorious. And so we continue to come to this table and we continue to remember the Lord who died for us. And we remember the Lord who's living with us and in us. And we remember the Lord who's coming for us. And let's live in the light of that hope that the fellowship we enjoy now will be eclipsed by the glory of the fellowship that's coming with our Lord and with one another. What a day that'll be. May we remember that when we come to the table of the Lord and meet with one another and our Lord there. And may he come quickly. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, just as those who came seeking Jesus were asking for his disciples to show them to him, Lord, we thank you that in the Lord's Supper we, we are shown Jesus, that we have the privilege of, of seeing his death pictured to us and are being reminded that we are partakers of that death, that by faith we have a part in the death of the Lord, and that our Lord who died and suffered his body to be broken and his blood to be poured out on the cross has risen from the dead in power, triumphant over the grave, testifying that the sacrifice he has offered has been received by you, that the debt has been cleared and our account with you has been squared, that you have reconciled us to you by the death of your son and that he ever lives now to intercede for us. And how sweet it is to be reminded that he comes and makes his dwelling place with us by his spirit that he is with us always to the very end of the age. And in the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of that present fellowship we have with him. And just as he came once to deal with sin, we know he's coming again in glory, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. May we remember that too, when we are not overawed by our fellowship here and by the preaching and by the table to be reminded that there's a future glory that awaits. That all these things are, are stopgap measures in a sense until the Lord Jesus comes. 
And then we will know wholeness and health and happiness and blessedness in a way we've never known it. And then we will be able to glorify you all the more when we see the glory revealed in the coming of your Son. So remind us always that he is coming. And that the things we do now, we do until he comes. And we pray that he would come quickly. Hear us, we pray in his name. Amen.